Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Louise Doughty, who has just made her debut under the Faber imprint with her sixth novel, Whatever You Love. The book is narrated by Laura, a physiotherapist and single mother of two, who lives in a forlorn seaside town on the south coast. It opens with every parent's worst nightmare. Two police officers come to the door to tell Laura that her nine-year-old daughter Betty has been killed in a hit-and-run accident. The book explores Laura's terrible feelings of loss, which subsequently gather into plans for revenge on the man who killed Betty, who, it turns out, has a story of pain and loss of his own. Doughty intercuts this narrative with an account of Laura's marriage to David and its eventual disintegration when he goes off with Chloe, a woman he met at work. What raises the novel far beyond my rather anodyne account of it is the intensity with which Doughty inhabits Laura's feelings. Rawly emotional is how one critic characterised it. Another praised its visceral power. Yet the critics have also picked up on how cleverly crafted, how tautly constructed the book is. And so I began by asking Louise about these twin challenges, capturing the dark emotional intensity and constructing a compelling story. Well, I suppose there's there's two questions there, aren't there? I mean, there's first of all, there's the issue of going into such dark and difficult territory and how do you do it as a parent and the way I look at it uh, which I suppose is the answer to both of those questions in some ways is I very much divide it up when I write a first draft of anything not just this book of anything I do method act the feelings of the characters if you like I do actually put myself in their position which is a very very strange thing with this book obviously because it's imagining the kind of ultimate horror for any of us which is the death of a child But I have to say, although lots of people have said to me, oh, that must be very difficult, of course, the truth is it's horribly easy because the minute your children are old enough to leave the house on their own, you spend your whole life in a state of constant fear and paranoia. I mean, that's just the reality of parenting. And I think it's probably no coincidence that I started writing this book at an age where my elder child was leaving the house on her own. And it was a quite abiding obsession for me and quite unavoidable. So I couldn't not think about it, really. So that side of it, that writing, that very intense emotional first draft, it was easier than you would think because it was there anyway. How do you get from from that anxiety that we probably all share about children going out on their own to what you've sort of described as method acting? Because that is several notches higher than than just, you know, being anxious about where your child is. Ah, because in a, in a way, that's the most remarkable thing about the book, really, is that is that the way that you inhabit those terrible, dark places through, throughout much of the book. And I just wondered if you say a little bit more about how you how you got into that position. Well, that's a very interesting question, really, because I think what that question is about it goes to the heart of what it is to be a writer and to put yourself empathetically in the position of anyone else. I mean, in this case, it's straightforward because it was the the mother of a, a child who's killed and I, and a fear that you know lots of parents live with but I've had to do the same in in my fourth novel fires in the dark I had to imag- imagine empathetically what it was like to be a middle-aged Romany man dying in a concentration camp in 1942 and that again was this sort of enormous imaginative leap where in order to write the first draft of that scene from Joseph's point of view I did have to if you like, imagine I was him and it was happening to me. I don't know. I suppose there's a whole theory that maybe um, maybe writers are touched with lunacy because I think part of the point is 
to be able to make that imaginative leap and to, for as long as it takes, really, really put yourself in that position. I suppose that's where the innate part of being a writer comes from. I'm not sure that's something that I could teach anybody or something that anybody could learn to do. I think um, as a trick, going somewhere like that in your head is something that you can either do or are prepared to do or can't do and are not prepared to do. And that's the sort of uh, the kind of the nebulous bit of, of being a novelist, I guess. In a way, are you sort of suggesting that it was easier to, to think yourself into that position than it was to think yourself into the position of a, a Romany man in the in the Second World War, that it, it was pushing beyond maternal feelings that you already had, but from a from base that was more familiar? I would say, in a way, they were both equally difficult, but in different, different directions. Imagining being Laura and what happens to her did make me go in a corner and cry a bit because it, it seemed so direct and seemed so related to my own life. Imagining being Yosef was equally distressing but I suppose it passed more quickly because it was something that I did for the purposes of writing the first draft of a particular scene. And then it was probably a fear that I moved on from more quickly because it was less related to my own life. Obviously, when it's very close to your own life, it, I think it is something that leaves its mark. What about the, the, the other point, the sort, of, the sort of technical aspect of plotting this novel of, of getting everything in the right place because it does seem very much like everything happens in the right, right place because you present the events of that afternoon in different places in the book it's not it's not a single continuous narrative is it no it's not and I was very very pleased when lots of the reviews noted that the narrative structure approvingly uh, that was a great relief because boy did I work on that aspect of it the book, the first draft of the book was structured quite differently from how it is. It was originally in alternating chapters before and after and before and after, you know, this cataclysmic event in Laura's life. And I realised about three quarters of the way through the first draft that it wasn't going to work because the plot of the book, it was a bit like a car that's kangaroo hopping, you know, it kept going and then stopping to go into flashback and then going again and stopping to go into flashback. And it was very difficult because what it meant was I had to take the whole novel apart, scene by scene, and put it back together again. And I've never had to do that with a book before, but I knew it was absolutely essential to get it right with this one. So I dismantled the whole thing, put it back together in a different way, and then realised after several weeks doing it that way that that didn't work either. And that was a horrible moment. I really thought maybe I've completely messed this one up. But then I took it apart for a second time and then put it back together again. And the third version, the kind of four-part structure that it is published, was the one that finally worked. But I think that's a problem you set for yourself as a novelist whenever you write a plot-driven novel, and particularly a plot-driven novel with flashbacks. Because flashbacks always retard the action in the sense that the flashbacks, they can be used for revelation, they can be used for character development, but it's not the same as a kind of real-time present tense story, which is, is what you have in whatever you love for half of the book. And I just think they have to be handled with the most enormous care. 
I couldn't have written a book with this kind of structure as my first novel. I didn't have the technical ability to do it. It's only because it's novel number six, and I'm a bit long in the tooth now, that I was able to be ruthless and also able to perform um, what I call to my students major surgery without anaesthetic. That was what that book needed, and it needed it more than once. And that was certainly something I was only able to do because it was novel number six. But it seemed to me that there was the present tense of the story, the, the after, but but you also succeeded in making the reader care about the narrative unfolding of, of the past. And that was, it wasn't just a flashback for information. It was actually, you were actually emotionally bound up in what was happening in, in the story of a, of a marriage disintegrating too, as well as this tragedy of the death of a child. Yes, that was quite deliberate. I knew that the flashbacks had to have their own narrative impulse. They couldn't just be there for illustration, otherwise the reader would get impatient, and rightly so. So there is a whole narrative strand in the past story about the breakup of Laura's marriage to David before their child is killed. And I made that deliberately slightly strange and ambiguous as well. At one point, Laura starts getting um, threatening phone calls and anonymous letters, which she believes are from David's new partner. So there's a whole mystery there to be unfolded as well. Also, another reason I did it was that the present tense story, what Laura does in the immediate aftermath of her daughter's death, is inevitably very full on and very intense. And I do think you do have to give your reader a bit of relief. I won't say light relief, but that sounds crass in the subject matter. But you do, there does have to be light and shade in a book. And although it's a book about bereavement, I didn't want it to be relentlessly grim. And I think it's very important that books like that aren't. So having the flashback scenes, particularly to Laura and David first meeting, was great because I could have them falling in love. I could put in lots of sex. Well, not lots of sex, but, you know, enough sex to keep the reader cheerful in the early well, stages. You could you'd included that very erotic scene of physiotherapy, which I thought was quite an achievement to, uh, to make a physiotherapy clinic quite so erotic. Well, I'm really pleased you said that was erotic because that was one I worked quite hard on. We, um, we had some friends around for Sunday lunch and the, the wife of a, a friend of my partner's is a physiotherapist. And I, I said to her, I said, OK, you know, talk me through you know what you do when you first examine a patient and she mentioned the bit about getting someone to raise their arms to look at their soft tissue and then having to shave the backs of very hairy male patients certain things and she was telling me this stuff perfectly matter-of-factly as a fully trained physiotherapist and I was just thinking great I know how I can use (laughs) this but also I think a, a lot of what happens in that physiotherapy consultancy session It's not just about what's going on physically, because there is some physical patient physiotherapist contact between them, but it's also very much about the eye contact, about the way in which David makes his interest clear. And the fact that on Laura's side, there's been quite a long build up to that. She's met him a couple of times before. He's always sort of been in the back of her head as a kind of fantasy figure. And then it it finally comes to be realized in a situation in which she is in a professional capacity and can't actually do anything about it until he signals his interest. And all the, the backstory, if you like, increases your, your concern for the characters, doesn't it? Because if you're immediately plunged into the tragedy without knowing much of, of what went before, then that, that, you know, that sort of attenuates your, your sense of identification with them, I think. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you, you, know, you have to let your readers care. You know, Laura is somebody who's had a tough life. She's been a teenage carer for a mother who has Parkinson's disease. She's grown up without a father. 
But I, I wanted to give her a bit of fun as well, and you know, particularly in her early relationship with David. And I wanted the reader to realise what was at stake for her, the way in which she and David have this kind of mad sort of three-month romance before getting married, almost on impulse. I thought then that somehow threw into sharp relief the tragedy of the marriage breakup and Laura's realisation that the fact is that David is just a very, very impulsive man. I mean, the point about David is that he's one of these men who wreaks enormous havoc in women's lives without any malice whatsoever. He, he never consciously means to hurt anybody, but because he's impulsive and he's unrestrained and he's not very good at putting himself in other people's shoes or working out how his actions impact upon other people, you know, he falls madly in love with Laura and then quite genuinely goes off and falls madly in love with Chloe, and which you know, obviously devastates Laura. But he, he doesn't at any stage intend to cause anyone any harm. And that, to me, seemed much more interesting than creating a male character who just happened to be a bastard. I mean, that, to me, wouldn't have been an interesting thing to do. I hope that what comes over in the book is, that, is, is David's complexity. And I wanted to make him real. Uh, in, in, while we're on the subject of David, I, I did give the manuscript to several friends to read before it went to my agent and publisher. And um, it was very interesting, the reactions of my women friends to David. <laughs> One who's very impulsive and romantic said to me, oh, I, I really fancied David's okay. character. I, I thought he was great. And another who's a GP and very practical said to me, oh, I, I didn't like David at all. I mean, I can see why Laura falls for him because she's vulnerable, but I thought he was a psychopath. So I, I now divide my women friends up into those who fancy David and those who don't. <laughs> you talked about not making David just a, just a bastard. And... You, you you chose to not to make the driver who kills Betty simply a bastard. You're, you're interested in, in who he is and, and where he comes from and what his story is. Now, tell me, tell me about that, how you, how you approached that. Well, that was important for the plot. It wouldn't have been very interesting if the driver of the car that kills Betty was just somebody who was stupid or careless or driving dangerously. I wanted to present his side of the story. I wanted to leave it ambiguous about how culpable he is. And I mean, having done a lot of research into deaths by dangerous driving, there is very often a huge amount of ambiguity about how culpable the driver is. And also this appalling dilemma, which is very much a matter for you know the police and the law, that you can never punish somebody adequately for doing something which may have only been careless but has still resulted in the loss of a loved one for a family. And it's very, very common for the families of people who've been killed in road accidents to feel incredibly aggrieved that the driver of the car who's convicted of death by dangerous driving will only get four or five years in prison. As it is, what turns out in the novel without giving it away is that the driver isn't even going to get that. But at the same time, I think it, it would have been facile to make him just some idiot in a four by four. He is more complex, he does have his own story, and Laura has to come and understand that and realise it. And then there turns out to be a, a development of a connection between them in what I hope is quite an unexpected way. I mean, at first I didn't buy it, but I think in retrospect, the more I thought about it, the more I came round to buying it. I mean, did you But did you know that was going to be there from, from early on, or was that something that sort of revealed itself to you it as you wrote? It was something that revealed itself. I knew that there was going to be some sort of development in the relationship between Laura and Armitage, who's the man who was driving the car that killed her daughter. I didn't know what form it would take. 
I didn't want to do anything crass as them having a romantic relationship, you know, the sort of thing that happens in films. I didn't really see how they could form a friendship. I knew that there had to be interaction between them, which was potentially violent. I wanted the reader to believe that Laura is actually capable of killing Amitage at one point or killing somebody close to him. So I went through most of the novel not entirely sure how that interaction would work. And then there came a point where I sat down to write a scene between them and it came to me. And I'm not going to say what happens, but it was one of those scenes where I sat back at the end of the day, looked at it and thought, where did that come from? Mm. Because it's a, it was a difficult and unexpected scene for me. So I knew it was going to be a difficult and unexpected scene for the reader. And in fact, it does divide readers. I've got away with it mostly with the reviews, but people who have read the book, I have had a couple of people come up to me saying they didn't like it or they, they didn't believe what happened or they were shocked by it. Uh, I, I think that's it's a common reaction. It's not a reaction. I'm worried about it. It's what I wanted and intended, really. I mm. wanted a bit of a surprise at that mm. point. I mean, I suppose the way in which Laura departs from other people who find themselves in the terrible situation that she does is not only that she has thoughts of revenge, but that she actually clearly intends for a lot of the book to act upon those thoughts. Where, where did that sort of impulse come from, do you think, within her and, and within you, that uh, deciding I, to... Uh, do I think it's just a matter of personality type, isn't it? I mean, I, I had this discussion with my partner, you know, what, what would you do if somebody, you know, harmed one of our children? And my answer was very simple, you know, I'd be, see that knife block over there, I would take the longest blade I could fit in my handbag and I would go after them. And um, he's a much more sort of rational person than me and we'd say, you know, we'd had you know, a long discussion about how, we, you know, would you let the law take its due process and all the rest of it. And I think it's a thing of personality type. I mean, I don't actually think that anybody really knows how they would behave until something like that happens to them. But I do believe that I I would be capable of behaving like Laura. I don't really have any doubt like that. It was also controversial in Fires in the Dark. I have the young boy who survives the concentration camp committing a really heinous act in order to survive. And several people said they didn't like that. At that point, they lost sympathy with him. And I was quite baffled. And I thought, well, actually, in his place, I'd have been more than capable of that if I'd seen my whole family down a concentration camp. So I think I think as an author, you can only write characters who behave in a way that feels emotionally true to you. And that is inevitably going to reflect your own personality. I mean, that's why writing novels is quite mm. a scary thing, mm. really, because people find out more about you mm. than you really wanted them to know. A lot of authors like to hide behind the idea that it's all fiction, but um, mm. when you write them yourself, you know that's not mm. true. Mm. It's all fact. Mm. It's all emotional all bubble, fact. Bubbling up in your subconscious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how much, how much access to her own motivations and, and deeper feelings did you want Laura to have, and how much did you want them to be sort of partially obscured to her and only gradually become... Um, apparent? Well, that's an interesting question because Laura doesn't really stop and analyse her own emotions at any time in the book. And I think that's because, particularly in the immediate story, she has been so blasted, if you like, by this thing that has happened to her that it has almost wiped the slate clean. You know, she starts from sort of year zero, um, from the point at which her daughter dies. That is something that I picked up from my research. I read a lot of accounts by parents who had lost children, and there's a lot of books out there. 
I read a very interesting anthology which was edited by two women in America who had both lost young sons in traffic accidents. I really did my research on that bit and I think what people underestimate is the way in which people are not just grieving but the slate is wiped clean, you know, nothing else matters, nothing else is possible. To me it seemed utterly plausible that from the moment Laura awakes she is possessed by this appalling thing that has happened and I do think that that something like that shifts your moral compass even if only temporarily there would there would be something wrong if it didn't really. But at, at the same time as you're saying you can understand the impulse to reach out to the knife blog you are also very interested in chains of causes and consequences and seeing you know as you say not making the man behind the wheel simply a a shadowy monster, but actually following some of those chains a long, long way back. Yes, I mean, that's been an abiding interest of mine since the beginning, really. I mean, my first novel, Crazy Paving, which was published way back in 1995, had a very strong theme based around chaos theory, which was very fashionable at the time in, in the early 90s. And it was that whole idea that, you know, a butterfly beats its wings in Japan and a tornado mm. happened over New Orleans. So, but I, I have for a long time been obsessed with the way in which a small decision can have completely catastrophic consequences. You know, you walk down a street and then you stop to get a newspaper so you don't get run over by the lorry that mounts the pavement or you take a different tube train and you're not in, in the bomb, the appalling bombing that happens underground. And this is, I think, what we all live with all the time. But it's particularly noticeable when you live in a big city like London. You know, is there anybody out there who hasn't had the experience of stepping out into a street, realising at the very last minute that there's a car coming too fast and stepping back and knowing that a moment's inattention and suddenly their entire family's lives could have been ruined. I mean, that's happened to all of us at some stage. And I think for a long while, I've been quite obsessed with the idea of accident and chance. You know, we weren't fated to meet the partner we were with. That happened because of an accident. You know, all those meetings are almost always accidental. If it hadn't been for a particular meeting, going to a particular party or whatever, your children wouldn't exist. You know, and I think that's been an abiding interest of mine that's probably revealed itself throughout most of my work. Tell me a little bit about Chloe, because she's she's another major female character in the novel, the, the new partner that David goes off with. And she too has got her her fractures and her, her, her demons, hasn't she? Again, in the same way that Armitage, the driver of the car, I wanted him to be revealed as something other from what you assume he is. In a way, Chloe is Armitage's mirror. She's the other revenge object in Laura's life. Laura wants revenge against Armitage because of the car accident and she wants revenge against Chloe because of the breakup of her marriage. And the idea is that there, there is actually quite a close connection between Chloe and Armitage, although they never actually meet in the novel itself. And again, Chloe, I wanted to try and overturn the stereotype slightly in the same way that Armitage is an economic migrant who lives in a caravan park on the cliffs, but turns out to have his own story, his own depth. Chloe, I think initially, I quite deliberately made her seem a bit shallow, a bit vacuous, the kind of very pretty woman who comes along to the office and kind of sweeps David off his feet. And then gradually for it to be revealed during the course of the book that she herself is something far more complex. And that actually, although Laura goes through an enormous period of 
hating Chloe, she actually has to overturn her own feelings towards her by the end of the book as well, without ever actually coming to like her. But she does have to realise that Chloe is not all she seems. I mean, basically, nobody in the novel is what they seem, I think, is the message, which um, I'm afraid I think is very true in real life as well. Let me ask you finally, Louise, how, how did you feel as you finished this book? I mean, were you emotionally drained by it or what what sort of what sort of feeling did it leave you with i don't think to be honest that i was any more emotionally drained than i am at the end of any novel i think finishing any novel is emotionally draining because you're leaving behind a whole world that you've created i think also by that stage you're just knackered and want shot of it and actually the hard bit is going back into it when you have to go through the editing process um, and the promotional process as well, because I think once you've exhausted a world, you tend to move on in your head. And what you want to talk about is what you're working on now, not the thing you finished um, a couple of years ago. I don't think I was more emotionally drained, but I think I did feel a profound sense of satisfaction that it was done and that a story which was a very difficult story to tell was out and there. And I won't have to go back to that territory again. I mean, um, I have an idea bubbling away for the next novel and there's going to be no death of a child. You know? <laughs> um, I think you, you move on. With each book you move on. You feel you've nailed that subject matter and then you move on to something fresh and new and, and that's the great joy of it really. So I'm pleased it's out there but I'm also pleased it's done and I'm pleased I won't have to write that novel again, ever. Louise Doughty. Whatever you love is out now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more author interviews and features on the Faber website, which you'll find at faber.co.uk. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Faber podcast, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.